primary care knowledge boost portfolio working Welcome to today's episode, which is all about portfolio working in primary care. We're going to be hearing from uh, Dr. Anya Lever, who's a GP in Trafford, Alison Rimmer, who's a practice nurse in Hindley, uh, Dr. Gandhi, who's a GP in Nottingham, Dr. Nikesh Valeb, and Dr. Syra Zaman, who are both Wigan GPs as well. Yep, exactly. Um, and the reason we kind of came um, up with the idea of the episode was essentially we've been portfolio working for the last year. Um, we were really lucky that we came straight out of GP training into the fellowship jobs with Health Education England which we've talked about a little bit before Um, and that allowed us to do clinical work but also to do the postgraduate certificate in medical education um, as well as being able to do some work with the CCG which is what's led to the podcast being made yeah Um, and we've really enjoyed the variety in our week and the fact that we're we're doing different bits of jobs and and we can kind of switch our minds to doing other things yeah and especially the podcast work it can be pretty flexible and work around um, kind of our days and fit in where we need it to fit in yeah um so it's been i think really good and we wanted to showcase um what's out there and what's available so that's why we went out and we spoke to all these different people first up we've got dr anya lever who's a gp in south manchester and she's got a couple of different roles that she's going to talk to us about so my name's Anya Lever. Yes, I am a salary GP. I'm 46. I'm married with two kids and two sausage dogs. And um, I do all sorts of other bits as well as general practice, which I will tell you about, I suspect, today. Lovely. Um, so if we go right back to the beginning, um, how did you start off in medicine? Um, probably like a fair number of doctors. I, uh, My mum was a GP. My dad was university professor, but mum was a GP. And I kind of always thought mum was pretty amazing and impressed the way she could... Uh, um, juggle career with family life and yeah I mm-hmm. I guess I was okay at the sciences and I wanted to help people yep. um, and yeah I think that's how I kind of got into medicine. Yeah mm-hmm. that's a nice sort of description mm-hmm. um, yeah so what was it that drew you into general practice? So I wanted balance and variety and to me family is really important. Yeah. Um, I was lucky I could and did have children so I needed something I could balance. Yeah. I did a bit of general practice um, Again, as I say, a circuitous route, I finished med school in Sheffield, did house jobs, went to Trinidad in the West Indies for six months and did A&E and had a marvellous time, didn't want to come back. Um, But fortune got a job before I left in a VTS scheme down in Bath. And that's where my general practice career began. Ah, And whenever you disqualified from the VTS and were kind of a brand new GP, what did your career look like at the beginning? Now, I'm trying to think. Initially, at my stage, I can't remember what they called it, but there was extra money in the, the deanery pot. And mm-hmm. they said, we could have these extensions and you didn't have to go straight into general practice. Mm-hmm. My now husband was then living in Plymouth and I wanted to combine something with being able to spend part of time in Bath and part time in Plymouth. I did some drug specialist training purely because there was a GP in Plymouth who of a list of 1,800 patients had 300 drug addicts on it. Mm. So I could Mm. kind of persuade them to pay me a salary to go and sit in on his clinics. And yeah, yeah, did a bit in Bath, just doing normal general practice and did that a day a week. So you've always from really early doors had an opportunity to do something alongside general practice that wasn't sort of typical. Yeah, we've all got opportunities it's yeah. just seeing them not being scared and saying yes and yeah this was just another random one so yeah yeah I think if we ask next what uh, maybe what your work week is like currently mm. so 
I've always worked part-time, as I say, because of having kids, they were my priority. And so I've always kind of worked around them. And since having kids, I've really only ever done two days a week of general practice. But then I got to the stage where that was a bit boring and I was ready for something else because kids starting school and things like that. Mm -hmm. So currently I do two days as an NHS GP, Mm -hmm. two mornings as a private GP for local private hospitals. I do kind of a session a week appraising or I appraise 30 GPs a year mm. so it's about half a day to prepare half a day to do so that's about half a day a week um, and I also do some CCG work as a prescribing advisor and that's kind of a bit here and there and fits around other things but probably about half a day a week term time only. Okay so there's the drug stuff you did at the beginning all this stuff now have you been involved in anything else along the way? Yes at one stage I don't know about you guys but it's nice to have kind of someone you want to be like when you grow up yeah. and when I was in Bath there was an amazing GP there Um, and I always thought I want to be like her so she got me into appraising I then joined her organizing the postgraduate education for the 400 odd GPs down there it was her and another GP and as I say just opportunities came up. Um, So if people are thinking about um, doing portfolio general practice have you got advice that you'd give them? I would say so definitely do it I love my job and I remain enthusiastic and positive but that's because I don't do the same thing all day every day. Mm -hmm. As an appraiser I have the, the lucky job of seeing what colleagues are doing and then being really open and honest about it Mm. personally I couldn't do eight or ten sessions a week as a GP and the opportunity to to say I do prescribing advisor stuff which means I get to keep really up to date and get paid to keep up to date what's going on in the prescribing world Mm. as an appraiser I talk to colleagues it's almost like being a doctor but to they're not patients for their colleagues it's doing something good for your colleagues and if you're doing appraisal well Mm -hmm. it's it's rewarding um and so really enjoy that yeah such a nice balance yeah i would never stop the nhs gp i've got wonderful colleagues um and really enjoy that and that keeps you up to date and i think it's important you can't let quality slip so my complementary roles have Mm. helped with my gp role yeah that's right and if you were to look back kind of over your career is there anything that you would do differently um not really no I've never really said no sometimes you sit and feel like gosh I've got too much on having always said I'm only going to work part-time but the other things appraisals flexible I can get up at six o'clock on a Saturday morning and prepare for someone's appraisal when the kids and husband are asleep so I it's not encroaching too much on making sure I'm home to get dinner on and drop people at school and I guess that um, is important with the kind of accessory roles that you can do those in other times it doesn't have to be a nine to five Monday to Friday kind of job absolutely so yeah. it's it is often it's slightly hard because sometimes it's really busy so you'll be doing emails late at night sometimes you can feel a bit snowed under when there's some pressure deadlines there but at other times it's it's leisurely um and you can fit it round yeah lovely thanks so much for chatting to us about your your pleasure. portfolio general practice yeah, yeah thank brilliant. you very much thank you. pleasure thank you so next up we've got Dr Gandhi who's a GP in Nottingham and he does a lot of portfolio working around um, the tech sphere so he's just going to introduce himself and then tell us a little bit about what he does. So um, I'm a GP working down in Nottingham in the inner city area and uh, I've been a tra- GP trainer there as well. I love education and I think that's where a lot of my roots with all the other stuff I do has come from. Yeah. Um, so I trained up in Yorkshire, uh, did my medical degree in Leeds and then went over to the Airedale region where I did my GP training. 
Um, mm. And I guess my first foray into different kind of things happened there. Uh, the reason why I got into tech was purely and simply because of Windows 6. Well, Internet Explorer 6, sorry. Um, so I hated it. And what I used to do in practice, I'd, I'd want to give resources to patients and that kind of stuff. Like, say, you know, go, go look at these exercises or go look at this yeah. you know, patient.info website, that yeah. kind of thing. But it took so long to load every single page. I was like, there's got to be a quicker way. So what I did, I I kind of created my own mini website. that was a dashboard for all the various resources. So I could just click on a link and it'd take me straight there. And I kind of had this idea of, I'll take this to the VTS because I was still training at that point. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is really good. But we don't want you to do it. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, you're going to leave in about a year or so. And then we're going to have to run it. So quite appropriately, they kind of said, well, actually, we'd rather, you know, do it ourselves. And they're like, fine, no problems. And then I had this website, I was like, well, I'll just make it public then. And then from there, it's just kind of grown. Um, so yeah. that was the egplearning.co.uk website. Mm-hmm. And then uh, social media hit. And as a result of that, I started using it in terms of how you can use it for CPD, you know, how you yeah. can learn things without having to sit in a conference or having to read yeah. a book and that, because there's so many other ways that you can learn. Yeah. Once I finished training, I took on academic teaching fellowship at the University of Leeds, uh, which I really loved. Um, and then me and my wife kind of got to this cross points of where do we want to kind of have the rest of our lives and that kind of stuff. So we moved back to Nottingham. Mm. At that point, I took on the partnership and um, completed being a trainer um, and things. And then, yeah, since then, it's just grown. Um, the tech side has grown with it. Um, so mm. I started the System One Facebook user group to try and help people yeah. that use System One because I'm a bit of a System One geek. What happened after that? So just gradually things changed, really. And then uh, when my daughter was born, I was kind of thinking, how can I do things more effectively? Because obviously want to spend more time with the family, the kids and that kind of stuff. Um, And that's when I kind of looked at the whole EGP learning thing and and thought, you know, actually, there's information out there that can be shared easily and effectively. And and using my skills to try and help with that. So I basically created the formal EGP learning platform that we have now, which is a Facebook page. And then gradually that went down to... YouTube and podcasting and hence why we're talking now (laughs) (laughs) and that kind of thing so yeah yeah. Uh, and it is yeah it is what it is now and it's doing amazing yeah and like you say the dashboard is so useful as well Mm. in terms of somewhere that you can easily find information and have that those access things because you're constantly trying to share links and useful resources so to have it all in one place you know whichever way you do it, it it just makes so much sense as well um, and it seems to me just from you chatting that um, uh, your career has been really born out of things that you've been interested in and that you've sort of moved things yourself. Um, did you ever get any guidance or any support about how to be a portfolio GP? Um, I never had any formal guidance. I had people suggesting to me, do you want to think about doing this? You know, um, and that's been useful and helpful at times. So um, uh, as well as all the kind of clinical and tech stuff I do, I've done a lot of supportive roles as well. Mm. So uh, I started off as an AIT rep in Yorkshire and then the first five rep as well. Yeah. And it was kind of suggested to me that would be a really good thing to do and mm. actually really enjoyed it and really useful. Um, when I moved to Nottingham, I then got involved with the local faculty and became their deputy treasurer and then treasurer. Um, and that was an, an eye-opener, learning how organisations you know, do their finances and, and the governance that comes with it. And that's led to other kind of roles within the college, um, as well as me becoming the chair of the faculty, yeah. which again was, was somebody suggesting me, you know, you'd probably be really good at this. Do you want to give it a try? really enjoyed it and then yeah people kind of said well what are you going to do next and I was like well I don't know and then the national reps position came up and and yeah went for it and was thankful to be elected by my peers as a national representative to council I'm also an LMC officer I'm now a clinical director for our local PCN as well yeah Uh, yeah so so, um, yeah Yeah. one of the worst things that most GPs are absolutely awful at is saying no Mm -hmm. yeah Um, you just take everything on and I'm definitely an example of 
being bad at doing mm. that. Um, Thinking about that, actually, because one of our questions was um, talking us through your work week to mm. kind of see what actually picture it is. That mm. might be quite useful to do if you can sure. talk us through yeah. what you do. Um, so my, my normal day starts around about quarter to six. Um, uh, I get up and I, I go off into my uh, attic kind of room and start doing some of my podcasting stuff. Or um, if I've got um, my vlogs out that week, that day, then I'll go off and pre-edit that and, and that kind of thing, as well as doing some of the writing stuff. Because I find doing a little bit of work first thing in the morning is when I'm most productive. Yeah. Um, so that's when I try and get my ideas stuff out my, out my way so it's then not interfering for the rest of it. Mm. Um, then I spend a little bit of time with my son uh, whilst he wakes up and stuff and, and I give him breakfast and things. Then I head off to work. Mondays, Tuesdays, uh, I'm in practice all day. Yeah. Um, so full days in clinic. Wednesday afternoons, I'm in clinic. And Thursday mornings, I'm in clinic. So I do right. six um, sessions. Wednesday morning is my time to do all my podcasting, my vlogging and that kind of stuff. So I generally have that set aside to do that kind of work yeah mm. um and then thursday afternoons and fridays is when i do my pcn stuff um unfortunately it has a habit of bleeding over yeah. mm. um, uh, anyone who is a clinical director will know that the job doesn't work doing it set times no matter how much you want it to it still bleeds <laughs> over but then uh, what, what i found is that uh, you know, swapping things around works a little bit easier as long as it's planned and again i've started taking my own advice i have started turning around to people and just saying no you mm. know if it's not something that doesn't Good. fit in those time frames it is i'm really sorry not going to happen yeah. you know i don't have the time to do that it's going to be if you want me to do it, it'll be done here and um, you've kind of alluded to a little bit of advice there but i was just thinking what advice would you give to gps out there young old anybody mm-hmm. in the middle that's thinking about a portfolio career i think the main thing is make sure you do something you really enjoy yeah um and that's because if you don't enjoy it you're not going to stick with it and then you're going to start regretting it down the line yeah. um so as, as much challenge like things like the podcasting the vlogging give me because it, it can be really time consuming i love it yeah. but as long as you make time and that's probably the other thing. So I did actually drop a session last year because uh-huh. I realized I was struggling. That's why I created that, carved out that time Wednesday mornings for me to to do the work and things. And I know yeah. if I hadn't done that, I'd still be doing the work, but then still be doing clinical work on top and, and it'd just be too much. You know, the things that you want to do, make sure you dedicate some carved out time to mm. do them. Yeah. Don't just try and stick it on on top because then it becomes an additional thing that you don't value as much. And then yeah. it's easier to, to, to forget it or not do it because other things take priority. Uh, anything now that you could there's a certain point that you'd reach back to yourself and give yourself a lovely uh, nugget of advice that you've now learned make sure you carve out time to do the things you want to do and, yeah. and and enjoy them and just go for it more than anything else you know yeah. one of the, the biggest challenges i see a lot of people doing is that hesitation to start yeah. you know because yeah. It's partly involved with the whole imposter syndrome side of things that I can't do it and nobody's going to listen to me and nobody's going to want to hear what I have to say. Yeah. Just get out there and do it. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. I think you've given some great bits of advice um, for all the people out there that are considering portfolio careers and are maybe starting out like ourselves and just wanted to hear a little bit about how it can be done. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you. We're going to hear from Alison Rimmer next, who's a practice nurse at Hindley. She does education alongside her practice nurse role, and she's going to tell us how she goes about doing that. My name's Alison Rimmer. Um, I'm a practice nurse at Pennygate Medical Centre in Hindley, Wigan, and I've worked here for the past just over 10 years. Very exciting. Um, and how did you get started into practice nursing, or nursing in general, actually, I guess, to start yeah. with? Nursing generally. Um, I started my nurse training in, in 1985. And I trained at Wigan, what was Wigan School of Nursing then. Yeah. I qualified in January 1989 and I spent three months working in the A&E department. Yeah. That was a sort of temporary role. 
So on the 1st of April 1989, I was offered a permanent post in the intensive care unit at Wigan Infirmary. And I spent the next 20 years working there. Did you? Uh, Yep, where I gained lots of experience, lots of knowledge, completed lots of different courses um, and eventually became a senior sister um, there. Okay. Yeah. As a sister in uh, intensive care, I was responsible for the day-to-day running of the unit. Yeah. Also responsible for the training and development of staff and also student nurses coming through, completing appraisals and obviously my teaching role there. Yeah. I did a qualification in teaching in 1989. How did you get involved with the teaching um, course that you did? How did you find um, it? I decided I wanted to do, well, I, I'd always enjoyed teaching, but I wanted to, for it to be a bit more structured approach. Yeah. I think just to give myself confidence in my teaching role. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, for it to be effective learning. So I completed the Sitting Guild 7307, as it was called then, at Wigan and Lee College. Uh, that's a 12-month course. Yeah. Um, so like I said, that gave me the certificate and the skills, if you like, to do proper a proper teaching role. Yeah. Um, so, and then what led you into general practice, nursing in general practice? So basically, I, like I said, I'd spent 20 years in intensive care, uh, got lots of experience, filled a lot of me, my ambitions, and I decided I wanted to look for a different career pathway before I got too old, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to learn some new skills and also veer away from doing shifts, particularly nights. Yep basically for a better work-life balance. The area of nursing I felt would be of interest is practice nursing, Mm -hmm. learning more about long-term chronic conditions, how they're managed in the community compared to in hospital and how to basically help to prevent hospital admissions of long-term conditions. That's right, from the other side. I feel like it's nearly like the opposite side of nursing. Yeah, the the complete opposite. opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that that was interesting, like you said, to see the opposite side of it, really, you know, what medication they're on. Um, you know what it's what it's meant for why it's important to take it yeah. um, and then you can see the consequence if they don't take it properly yeah. you know things like that and like yeah. because you're seeing it from that other background a bit yeah. it's really useful for you here because yes. you can actually tell patients what it's like when it gets too bad exactly <laughs> yeah. I've seen it all and you know yeah. done all that and yes I can um, Where at that stage in life when you decided that you wanted to change how difficult was it for you to change um, in one way it wasn't difficult in terms of getting the job Mm -hmm. but it was difficult in terms of learning new skills it was obviously vastly different yeah in the intensive care unit we tended not to use a lot of oral medications it was all intravenous and it's it was learning about different drugs yeah um and the importance of them so yeah it was it was a lot lot different and a lot to learn do you have to retrain or could you just apply and then start just apply yourself um and you sort of observe other experienced nurses pick up you know the skills from them Mm -hmm. Um, but now there is actually in place some practice nurse training for newly qualified nurses generally yeah Uh, so there's a bit more of a structured program Mm -hmm. going on yeah I think it's a nice job as well practice nurse it's I suppose it's more sociable hours yes and it's a varied role so you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. do this exactly the same day in day out yeah yeah again you're learning lots of different skills so now can you tell us how you got into teach well said about getting involved in teaching in intensive care but involved in teaching as a practice nurse how did that evolve um like I say I've always uh, been happy to teach and keen on teaching so I did my teaching certificate Mm. um one of my other roles that I've done as well as teaching is being a mentor when I came into practice nursing we didn't actually it's only the last couple of years we've actually got student nurses coming through into practice 
So I did another mentorship course <laughs> about three years ago, <laughs> which I suppose updated me. Yeah. And then I knew what student nurses needed to know. So it, it did me a lot of good, really. So, yeah, it's, it's useful in my mentorship role now. I mean, because, again, I like teaching, you know, on a one-to-one. Yeah. Obviously, patients are coming in and they're observing me, reviewing the patient. Yeah. Um, so they're getting, you know, that face-to-face contact um, yeah. and understanding. If I give them information, you know, teaching, that they can see it in practice, if you like, and yeah. see how it works. Okay. And were there, you said that there's only been student nurses for a couple of years. Um, so yes. when you became a practice nurse, no, did, we didn't get any student nurses at all at that okay. time. Um, it has been maybe maybe three years at the most. I think we've been getting them in practice. Um, okay. Um, and is it something that any practice nurse could pursue if they wanted to? A mentorship role, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, yes. I believe now you don't have to do an assignment. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, there have been a few changes with the mentorship role. They're apparently not called an a, men- a mentor anymore. I think it is an assessor they call you. Know. Is this, that almost sounds yeah. more formal. Yeah. Do you have any advice out there for people who are thinking about um, doing some things that are outside of the standard practice nurse role like education? Um, I mean, I personally think education is a good thing. I think if you've got a wealth of experience, I mean, like I say, I've done 20 years in intensive care, there's a lot of knowledge I can transfer into practice nursing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think teaching is a good thing. Even if you don't like to teach, as in a classroom setting, yeah. you know, on a one-to-one basis, it is, is great. And like I said, you know, the students I've had, I've had some really positive feedback, which is yeah, nice. Exactly. Um, and I guess it adds a lot, it adds yeah. that variety to your week as well. Yes. Yeah. And a lovely lot of the students, yeah. you know, when they're really sort of interested and keen yeah. um, and take it all on board. I mean, I had a really good feedback from one of the student nurses you know, she sent me a lovely card, bought me some flowers Aww. and um, a little plaque um, to do with mentorship. And Aww. yeah, she felt really supported. She was really pleased. Um, yeah. She kept coming back. See? Aww, <laughs> to say hello. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's nice when you feel as though you've done a job well and you get positive yeah. feedback. Well, it's, yeah. nice. it's nice touching base with kind of that kind of aspect isn't yeah. it i like it when we have medical students and things yeah. it's kind of reminding you yeah. of where you've come from yeah so um other than the education side are there other roles that practice nurses can get involved in outside of their clinical work um some of the other responsibilities or roles that i've done while i'm here uh, is uh, being involved in a research project or studies oh, yeah. yeah that was quite interesting and how did that how did that come about um, it was called the impact study and it was to do with psoriasis mm. and I suppose the impact it has on an individual's coronary heart disease risk. Ah, yes. Um, and I think it, mm. it was trying to differentiate whether it was um, sort of a physical risk as in whether somebody with psoriasis suffered from high cholesterol, um, high blood pressure maybe, mm-hmm. or whether it was a sort of more of a psychological impact whereby somebody with really bad psoriasis was less likely to go out and exercise Mm. you know because of embarrassment or whatever yeah so it was sort of looking into the physical and the psychological aspects of of psoriasis really it's very interesting Um, yeah i'm sorry i interrupted you in the middle of telling you any other rules that um, you're aware of one of the nurse practitioners went out to a school a high school to really teach the school nurses about asthma and ah, asthma management well, that's nice. because we found yeah. that a lot of school age children the older ones probably the teenage ones were less likely to come to the doctors for their annual asthma review yeah so we went to them so to mm. speak um another little thing that 
is going to take place just this week is to do with the children's the preschool nasal flu vaccines. Yeah. A couple of us practice nurses are going out to a nursery yep. to, uh, to, to administer the nasal flu mm-hmm. vaccine. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I imagine you see a lot more recent, um, kind of not recently, it might have been happening for years. We're quite new GPs, but um, nurses taking a lot of leadership roles as well. Um, so, kind of, they're, they're, I know that there's um, nurses that are partners and all sorts of things across yeah. the country. As in, like, like a nurse practitioner and taking on, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's nobody here who's got like a special interest or take on a role. We don't all do the same job. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Oh, well, brilliant. Thank you so much for chatting to us today. Yeah, no um, it's been really interesting to hear a completely different perspective yeah. to what we're normally used to. So it's yeah. been lovely. So thank you. Thank you. And lastly, our last interviews are with Dr. Nakesh Feleb and Dr. Cyrus Arman, who will introduce themselves and what they do. So I'm Nikesh Feleb. I'm a GP in Wigan. I qualified in August 2015 after finishing the GP training programme. And I currently work at Chandler Surgeries, mm-hmm. and I'm a trainer there at the moment as well. And briefly, uh, some of the, the other roles that we do outside of practice, I'm involved in education. For the past probably 18 months or so, I do the GP trainees teaching. Yeah. And in terms of management roles, we tend to have roles within the CCG around workforce and with the GP fellowship. And most recently doing the work as a clinical director for our primary care network. Lovely. Um, And I'm Cyrus Ammon and I'm a GP here in Wigan as well. I qualified in 2000 and I guess my other roles alongside my GP role are as a GP trainer, Mm -hmm. teaching a consultation skills course here in Wigan, being involved in something called the CSA SOX Educators Programme, which relates to the GP education, but then also a CCG role, which is the Primary Care Education Chair. Lovely. So what was it that drew you into general practice in the first place? Yeah, I think for me, um, after finishing med school and doing foundation training, I initially chose to do medicine, so core medical training. Mm -hmm. And I completed the two years in core medical training and the exams that went with it. And there was a point somewhere in that second year where I had a bit of a change of heart and started to kind of reflect back about what I want to do going forward Mm -hmm. and whether medicine was a part of that. And made a difficult decision then to change and apply to general practice. And, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed medicine and and thought it was a very valuable experience and it's been really helpful for general practice. And I think what we've seen a lot with a lot of the trainees that we teach is a lot of people do make that change. Mm. And sometimes people can feel, you know, it's kind of going back on training a little bit, but it's just the confidence, I think, to to make that change. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Um, I probably followed the more traditional route into primary care I think I think um, it all seems very predictable from choosing my A-levels to medical school to (laughs) going well not immediately into a GP training program but a year after that the biggest change I had to make was swapping training courses which meant to move across England but Mm. primarily focused about work-life balance I think for me it was very conscious decision that I recognized hospital medicine wasn't for me in longevity in terms of thinking about how my life was going to map out primary care was a more attractive option in terms of flexibility I didn't quite realize how flexible it is but recognized that was a big driving force for me so if we skip further back and and why did you choose medicine as degrees I think it's at the time it wasn't as 
clear in terms of what choices to make. And I think it's quite early to to make those sorts of choices about careers and professions that you want to do. And I think from my own perspective, I've never really had a clear path that I wanted to take or, you know, in terms of a final goal that I want to reach. Yeah. It would kind of apply because of, and thinking back towards kind of school times, enjoying sciences, but wanting to have that kind of ability to have a role where you have communication, where you can interact with people as well. And I think for me at that time, medicine seemed to fit that bill really well. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, again, it was very much the be good at sciences, you will plot this certain course. And Mm. to be fair, I remember recognising I wanted to do medicine very early, sort of early teenage years, which I I don't know if that's normality or not really. (laughs) But um, yes, I got a family member who was also in doing medicine. So Mm. it was familiar. And um, I think that sometimes helps, although I don't know if it manages expectations all the same. Funnily enough, I've got a teenager who's at that point of choosing A-levels and um, it seems daunting having to choose at what I now feel is a very early age Mm. quite a set path which on reflection I now know is is hard isn't it it's it you need to be tough to get through medical school and the career beyond and for me there's a massive world at the end of that medical degree yeah. that might not look like what you thought it would be when you set out. Yeah. yeah. Thinking now about working outside classic general practice, how did you guys both start on that journey? Well, I think, I think for me, it was, it was something that I, I knew I'd wanted to do other things outside the, the kind of traditional general practice role. Mm-hmm. And when I kind of reflected back about when we've done the general practice training, for a lot of other specialities, when you reach the end of training that is almost that kind of final destination. And what we kind of reflect with our training GPs is that once you've completed your training, that's actually really the beginning. And Mm -hmm. you then have a range of opportunities that are available to you and you can really start to choose areas of your interest. Mm -hmm. And what we started to do in the registrar year was there was an option to get involved with an audit that the CCG were running, looking at discharge summaries from secondary care to primary care and just thinking, is there a way of improving communications? Mm -hmm. And it was really the first opportunity to get involved with something like that. And once you almost get your foot in the door, it kind of opens up a few more opportunities in different ways. And it then kind of led on to doing things like the um, the GP fellowship as well in 2016. And I think probably from the education point of view, it was quite nice in practice to be supported to take on medical students quite early on mm, yeah. and just get used to having learners in practice, being responsible for them learning a bit more around educational theory and being able to do an induction and supervision yeah. and, and really develop confidence to then progress in education as well. So I think that was probably the earliest um, exposure I think I had in those areas. Mm. What about you, Sarah? I, th- I think immediately after completing general practice training, I did some sessional work outside of general practice. I think I just wanted to have something else to my my palette of what I was so the immediate offer was doing some sexual health sessions over in Bolton where the day release program used to be yeah it's a funny thing that the nature sometimes is if you put your head above a parapet and your name becomes known as somebody who's willing to give things a go or try something out offers come to you so Mm -hmm. the, the first thing I sort of did outside of 
clinical work was getting involved in the summary care record when that was an initially mm. being mooted as an idea and a concept. Yeah. It's probably not where it was imagined to be anymore, but um, that was the first thing I did. And then alongside that, knew I wanted to be involved in GP education, whether or not that was because I, you know, I do believe the local scheme here has a really strong footing and the support yeah. network is great so mm. it's very mapped out if you want to be an educator you, you know you start off with kind of medical students or fy doctors and then mm. you do your basic training course and you finally get your hands on um gp <laughs> trainees and then the other things that came along are um add-ons really to the trainer role I guess where they're little niches of specialism so for me that's very much down the consulting route being involved with the CSA SOX program and um, mm-hmm. the consultation skills and every now and again I, I dip into the ST3 program but again it's a really flexible arrangement that very much suits me and that I'm kind of co-opted in as as needed (laughs) and we've been asking people what their um work week is like now just to kind of give a flavor of what it can be like as a gp so sarah what's what's your week like at the minute so at the moment i'm six to seven clinical sessions i'd say Uh, basically monday tuesday are all day practice Mm -hmm. and wednesday morning is practice um wednesday afternoon is given over to some of the teaching commitments and thursday and friday are my flexible days so um usually filled with attending various meetings a lot of email traffic with the other roles Mm. as a trainer there are certain peaks in the year where there's a flurry of activity with our educational supervisory reviews and there are some days where things happen on a Monday when I'm there till late and it's tricky balancing everything but for me the magic number I think is doing about six sessions um, if I can. I think you're right I think you have to have the dedicated time to be able to give to the other things to do them properly. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I think I definitely agree with that I think for some reason three days or six sessions seems to be about right for the clinical work and the the other work that we tend to do I mean the education even though it's on particular days it it can vary from week to week and it almost feels like the resilient session of the week you know with delivering education Mm. it's a time where you can actually just enjoy the session you feel quite refreshed when you've done it it helps to keep your knowledge and things up to date as well and I think it it balances the intensity sometimes of the clinical roles and the management roles so I'm similar in terms of the, the six sessions in practice, but the the kind of management sessions. So we, you know, for the for the CCG and for the clinical director work, it tends to be based on delivering outcomes rather than being in a particular place for you know half a day. Mm-hmm. And so it then gives you a bit a, well a lot more flexibility where you can work off site, and it gives you a bit more autonomy of what your working week looks like as well. And I think it makes it more manageable. I think if we're doing a, an equivalent of a full-time role and you had to be in sort of 9 till 6.30, Monday to Friday, mm. I think that's the bit that can get quite intense for a lot of yeah. people. Yeah, and, yeah. and when you hear about things like burnout in the early years, I think it is that intensity and not having as much control of what your working week looks like. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and so do you have any advice out there for people who are thinking about doing some bits and pieces outside the the standard clinical role? I would say the positives that it brings to you are 
huge. You have to be good at managing your own time. You have to perhaps be creative. Mm. But as Nikesh says, that doesn't have to mean you're sat behind a desk from nine till five, Monday to Friday. Mm. So long as I think you can adapt to that, everything's possible. I think it's having the confidence, I guess, to go for it because I don't think medical school particularly prepares you for these roles. Even perhaps GP training, I think, I guess we are examples that people might look to for advice but the support is huge out there there's a real willingness I think to engage with us as clinicians I think we bring a lot to the table personally I don't feel like an expert in the managerial side and I think that is what often holds me back is uncertainty around structures of organizations how decisions get made in organizations because what I'm very much used to is my own small practice where things happen quite quickly change happens quickly and being able to navigate a different landscape can feel unsettling yeah I guess you don't know what you don't know until you're involved in it but it's always been a positive experience the help is there you just need to ask for it I think that's quite a nice um, Mm. learning point for everyone out there who's kind of thinking about it is maybe find somebody that you can see doing it Mm. and ask Um, absolutely because that's one of the only ways that you'll get some help Mm. definitely would agree with that I think from a personal experience I would strongly recommend having as much variety in your role as possible um, you know to keep things fresh and it you know like we were saying before it gives you that work-life balance it gives you that resilience as well and the confidence bit I think I could relate to as well is that sometimes a role comes up and, and the barrier that we have is our own feeling about can we can we fulfill that role? Do I have the skills for that role? And I think any of the roles that I've got into over the last three or four years, I don't think I've ever gone in feeling fully prepared. Um, and actually, a lot of it is learning it through the experience. And you realize all the skills that you develop through portfolio working is actually helpful in your clinical care. And it does help you to get have a better perspective on the healthcare that you're providing for your group of patients. And I think the the advice that I'll probably suggest to people is is that just to have that enthusiasm to go and try something different, um, to go and learn something new, and that, that ability to spend time shadowing or to gain experience, I think, can be really helpful, just yeah. even to help with from, a, from a confidence point of view. Yeah. Um, and I think the other bit that I found really, really helpful was just having a bit of headspace to think about things as well. Yeah. Because often opportunities come up and you haven't really had space or time to think about it and it's difficult to make a decision. So we might quickly take on that role and maybe regret that Mm -hmm. or we might miss an opportunity because we feel that we're not prepared enough for that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that really helped for me was we went on the PED course, which is the professional educational and development course run by Health Education England or Health Education Northwest. And it just gave you that space with other like-minded people to just have a think about what are your goals, where do you want to get to, and just having the support to help you figure out how you might do that. And I think that really helped them with the confidence part of taking on new roles. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, so now that we've heard from all of those different people doing all those different things, what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I've really enjoyed recording these episodes. Um, Each time we've spoken to somebody, I've gotten something slightly different with it. And I thought 
because I've been doing this year that I kind of understand it but actually it's starting to make me think about what the future might look like and yeah yeah really good bits of advice that I've picked up on exactly um I think the I I completely agree with you I think I thought I knew what it would look like but you can you can literally do anything um there's so much out there if if you get there's so many opportunities and and you just need to to be brave enough to go for them I think yeah really if it's if it's what you want want, exactly and and again I think that's the most important thing you've hit mm. it on the nail on the head there that um gp can look like anything um but it just it's what you want it to look like mm-hmm. that's most important so um if you get your joy in in seeing patients then obviously mm. clinical work is going to be what you want to do yeah. um but if you're struggling with clinical work or you think that you just need a bit of variety or need to do something else then this could be a good option as well yeah. so it, it's really just what you want it to be yeah and off mic when we were talking to people it was really nice to see how people have worked their careers through also have bringing up children as well yeah and doing things outside of that uh, that have been flexible has been quite interesting um as well as people talking about their practices and being in resilient practices where the yeah. culture of the practice has really supported what they're doing yeah exactly yeah. um and I, th- I think that's really important because if you're going to be um doing stuff outside of the um the clinical work you probably need to be in a practice that's a bit open to that um and a bit flexible and, mm-hmm. and understands it so that again it's not a barrier to you wanting to do it yeah exactly yeah so there's a few ways that you can get in touch with us if you'd like to give us any of your feedback uh, yeah so um we are on twitter um and we um, love chatting to people on there so um our handle is at pckb podcast um find us um let us know what you're thinking about the um podcast we've also got an email address which is primary care podcasts at gmail.com you can get in contact with us there with any feedback anything you'd want us to do differently um we always love hearing from all you listeners mm-hmm. the survey link is also in the episode description as well yes and we always say at the end of the episodes but um any um specific feedback you can give us on that is great till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.